Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Maria Konnikova is an award-winning author, psychology PhD, New Yorker writer, and now poker champion and poker stars pro. Her books, The Confidence Game and Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, combine literature, psychology, and storytelling. Her next book, The Biggest Bluff, became even more anticipated because Maria is doing so well at the poker tables. This was highlighted by a huge victory at the 2018 PCA Championship in the Bahamas worth over 100K less than a year after Maria took up the game. Maria, thank you so much for joining me on The Grid to talk about a notorious but also beloved hand, the Seven Deuce Off. Thanks so much for having me. You know, when you said I could pick any hand I wanted, obviously, you know, Aces is is the favorite, but Aces was already taken. I was like, what hand actually has fascinated me the most since starting this journey where I knew no hands? And immediately the hand that jumped to my mind was seven deuce offsuit because you learn right away that it's the worst hand in poker because you can't make flushes, you can't make straights. Basically it's garbage. And the only kind of flop that you like is seven, 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 which does not happen very often. (laughs) So I was drawn to talking about it for a lot of general reasons. And only then did I realize, oh, actually I have a specific hand where I ended up in a hand with seven deuce offsuit. Ooh, I'm so excited to hear it. Take us through the main one that inspired you to pick this holding. So it was a very funny situation. It was last summer at a side event for the World Series of Poker in Las Vegas. And I had busted out of a tournament. I was kind of steaming a little bit and decided to hop into um, one of these daily deep stack tournaments that they offer at the Rio. And I think, I don't remember what the buy-ins are for them. I think they're like 235. That rings yeah, about. something something like that. My dad so loves just, them, by the way. He was probably <laughs> at one of your tables. So so I just, I just jumped into it. And I was actually doing decently on the structure. Um, I know the structure is going to be different this year. But last year, it's a pretty turbo structure. And I didn't jump in at the beginning. I jumped in kind of somewhere midway through. And so it was pretty shallow. And I was actually kind of doing decently, but not, you know, we were still a a long way from the money. And all of a sudden, I get a text from one of my friends saying, hey, um, we're here earlier than expected because some friends were coming in from out of town. We made this dinner reservation. We hope you can join us. And I was like, oh, my God, um, I really want to go. I haven't seen you in forever. I don't really, you know, I I only jumped into this tournament that I wasn't even planning on playing because I was steaming. And I said, yeah, absolutely, I'll be there. (laughs) Let me just basically get rid of my chips. So I just started raising every single hand. And 
then I realized that people were folding. So I started shoving every hand and I actually announced to the table that I was going to be doing this. I said, look, some guys, I need to go to dinner. Um, so I'm not even going to look at my cards. And I started winning with the most crazy hands in the world because people would call me and I would double. Um, and I would look at my cards and it would be something like eight, four offsuit and I'd end up hitting quad eights. It was just crazy. And I ended up building up a huge stack. And then I realized I can't go to dinner. Um, I actually am going to have to play because rather than busting, I am now the chip leader of this daily deep stacks tournament. And then there I am sitting with 70 soft suit. At this point, I've decided to start playing again because it wouldn't be an interesting hand if I was just shoving every two. And I decide, you know what, my image at this point is so insane that the same thing to do would be to uh, fold this, but I'm just going to raise and see what happens. So I raised and got called in multiple spots because at this point people realize that I'm just a lunatic. But no one's re-raising me because they know that I'm also capable of shoving with any two cards because that's exactly what I've been doing for the last hour. And the flop comes ace-king-x, definitely not a deuce. And it checks to me. I continuation, but pretty big. I think like two thirds pot. Both people call. The turn is a nine, putting a flush draw on board. Not a nine. I'm sorry. The turn was a queen. The river was the nine. Turn was a queen, putting a flush draw on board. So and now for some reason the big blind decides to lead out. And I was like, you know what? I'm sitting here with seven high and absolutely nothing. And why not? I have lots of chips. And there was really very little going through my mind, except I don't know how I even got to this place. And so I have never been in the spot in my life. There's no PO solver simulation that you can do to run this because you're not supposed to be here with seven deuce offsuit. And we're not playing a cash game. We're not playing the seven deuce game. I should just fold and be done with it and realize that, you know, I've had my fun, but now it's actually time to start playing some serious poker. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to go with this. And so I raised pretty big and ended up getting a fold from the person still to act and the blind called. And then the river was a nine that completed the flush. And at this point, it was checked and I shoved and the guy tanked and ended up folding. I did not show seven deuce, even though I know a lot of people would have because it would be a very, very funny spot. It actually, I think this was the most liberating tournament I've ever played in because it made me realize on a very deep level how much of poker just really isn't about your cards. And I know we say that all the time and I know that we talk about it all the time. And I know that that's one of the first lessons you learn that, you know, you don't play your cards, you play the players. But it's it's one of these things that it's so hard to internalize that until you end up in this crazy, crazy spot and you make a play that you would have made with kind of another part of your range. And this this hand is just never in your range. It's never coming up in your study because this is basically the only hand that you're folding always even if you're defending your big blind. So it was one of these incredibly liberating moments where I said, wow, actually kind of sometimes this old school gangster style poker can work. And it also, it tied in with what my image was like, the fact that I was female. There were just so many things going on in my head at the moment that it really stuck with me. And I think it, it freed me up to do things I had never even considered doing in the past. I totally know what you mean that 
playing a hand totally outside of your range just to prove that you can do it. I usually find that charity tournaments are great um, breeding grounds for that. But to go back to the details of this hand, ace, king, x, and then queen, nine, and yes. the heart draw or whatever the suit was. I always, yep. I always default to hearts. <laughs> but um, could, Let's imagine that it was the heart draw, yes. It, it came through in the river. Um, now, thinking about this hand now, a year later, um, what do you think like the bluffs in your range would be by the river? So, so the really interesting thing is that because it's ace, king, queen, nine, basically my entire range has hit by that point. I have so many ace-x, and I opened from relatively early position. This wasn't me opening from cutoff. This was me like under the gun one or two. The funny thing is my analysis, even though you know the hand is ridiculous because of the hand that I'm actually holding, but my analysis wasn't too crazy. I thought, well, you know, this is a board that hits my range incredibly hard because I have the top sets, obviously. Um, I have ace-king. None of them do because they would have re-raised me. Even though I'm playing crazy, if they're good, they're actually going to re-raise me more frequently because they know I'll call. They'll be able to build a huge pot with these hands. So why in the world would they want to just flat and uh, keep the pot small. So I think that um, that is a board that I'm going to be c-betting a lot um, because even the cards that miss have a ton of equity. And sure, I might have, you know, I might have some small pairs that I'll turn into bluffs. But actually, the seven deuce is pretty great because it unblocks all of their um, hands that they could call for one or even two streets with, but can't really go all the way with because they're not the strongest. They're just pretty good but not great because the great ones that that board hits um they would have re-raised pre-flop so i think that my kind of flop continuation bet makes a lot of sense and it makes sense to to bet big but i don't think it's totally crazy you know talking about blocker effects unblocking effects seven deuce i mean you just unblock the world so you don't have to be worried about it interacting with uh with anything if i'm thinking about it you know, what What do I have as bluffs in that situation? You know, maybe I have like some pocket threes, um, some pocket fours that I just decided to kind of go crazy with because I knew that they couldn't call. But that's really it. It's hard to find other things that would just be pure bluffs because I'm getting thin value, sure, but I'm getting value from a lot of hands because I have a lot of sets, I have straights, I have flushes, and it does become difficult to find things that just completely whiffed. Well, obviously, if you have the seven deuce, then you probably have a lot of other random hands, but <laughs> I find the dynamic in this particular hand quite interesting because you've also announced to the table that you have to go to dinner, but I imagine at this point people realize that maybe they're, they're kind of confused because maybe you're taking it seriously again. Did you announce to the table that you were no longer going to dinner well I stopped shoving every hand so I think that that was uh I think that that was because they stopped calling um because I was just winning everything it was kind of it was a little bit insane that also makes you realize you know how how much of a role luck often plays in these things in the short term I think after I won with quad eights with eight four offsuit people stopped calling me because I kept knocking people out um so then but they they did see that I started looking at my cards um and I had folded a few hands at that point it was clear that I was no longer shoving any two cards. Right, yes. And then, of course, your stack's actually quite valuable because these events, um, yes. I, I've seen these deep stack events. I've had friends who've gone, done really well in them. It's like 50, sometimes it's like $50,000 for first in a $200 tournament. Uh, it's 
I, I don't know the exact prize amount, but it, your stack was probably quite valuable at this point if you yes, were a chip leader. Yes, spoiler alert, I ended up bubbling. <laughs> so my big stack did not did not end up uh, getting me into the prize pool because I think, to be perfectly honest, my mind just couldn't concentrate for for the period of time needed to translate the stack into uh, into a cash. But yes, the stack was quite valuable at that point. And I don't think I had actually quite gotten that, wrapped my mind around that, because to me, it was still a $200 tournament that I wasn't planning on playing. And I hadn't really played a lot of those deep stacks before, so I didn't really know what the prize pools looked like. In retrospect, I was pretty dumb, which, you know, you, you learn from everything, obviously. I was pretty dumb once I ran up a stack to then not realize that it was a very valuable stack. Instead, I was like, ah, you know what, easy come, easy go, which is never, never a good attitude to have at the poker table, no matter how badly you're tilting. But it sounds like this was a kind of a mistake that wasn't typical for you to make. And I think, you know, opening the seven deuce and then going bananas with it, it's like, it's almost (laughs) like it was a freeing mistake. And I I, I kind of agree with you that in poker, it's important to make like all the different types of mistakes, because then you can kind of learn from them when you see them in other opponents as well. Yeah, absolutely. I learned a lot from this hand on every single level because first of all, I realized that even though, you know, you can you've never run an analysis with a specific hand because it's just never part of your range, you can still I mean, you can still be intelligent about how you approach different boards and that kind of it helps you figure out that yeah, this is not normally one of my bluffs here, obviously, because I should just fold the moment anyone does anything weird. But then you start to realize that analysis can get you to that point where you're able, if you understand what the analysis is telling you, then you can apply it to hands like seven deuce. You can realize, okay, what is the big blind doing leading? That was one of the reasons I decided to raise, not because I had seven deuce and it was doing anything particularly great for me. I was like, well, what are you really leading on this turn after you just call me pre-flop and call flop, it was a very strange spot in my mind for the big line to lead. You're almost more free to look at the psychology and the dynamic of the hand because you really aren't thinking about your cards because your cards are trash. Your cards are so incredibly useless that all you can do really is just try to figure out what's going on with the rest of the hand. That's something I've been thinking about over the last couple of years as people are more invested in game theory, all types of players, whether they they started out gravitating to poker or not that way, your book's title is The Biggest Bluff. And I think there's a sense that perhaps out there people are under bluffing. And my Uh theory for the reason that is, is that they know there's a certain type of class of hands that they're supposed to make bluffs in. And if they don't have a good randomizing technique, that means they're mixing those bluffs in based on their mood. Mm-hmm. So if their mood is not to bluff, then they're going to be under bluffing. Whereas maybe old school poker players or before game theory became so widespread, people would mix all types of hands into their bluffs, not just like the ones they were supposed to. Then they might approach a better frequency, even though they weren't going about it in the correct way. Mm-hmm. The end result might actually be closer to like the right amount of bluffs. Yeah, I think that that is actually a really interesting thing to think about. Um, And it also, I think, one of the reasons that just seven deuce as a hand, um, and not necessarily the specific hand, appeals to me is because it actually, it speaks to a lot of what drives some people to enter the world of poker, and what drives a lot of recreational players, but also a lot of professional players. 
And I think that we see that in the invention of the seven deuce game, where you know every time that someone wins a hand with seven deuce when you're playing a regular no limit game, um, everyone at the table pays them a certain amount of money because the idea is obviously you know you you're winning with these with two worst cards that you could possibly get in combination, and if you did that, then you've got some real balls, um, you've got some real machismo, you've really got what it takes to be kind of a shark at the poker table. And I think this really speaks to a lot of the origins of what people found interesting about poker, or not interesting, but kind of motivating. And it, to me, it speaks to kind of some of the bad things in poker, but also some of the things that as a female, I can take advantage of in poker, which is this desire to kind of show that you're able to just pull off these insane bluffs with seven deuce. I totally agree. I mean, Seven Deuce is a fascinating holding because there's so much emotion tied to it. Obviously, one of the points of the grid is to show that there are so many bad hands, but they all have their distinct values and they're there. And I think that's important Mm -hmm. to remember because people are kind of like, you know, when they're starting out, they often whine, you know, I'm getting like nine, four off every hand. When am I going to get aces or ace king? Well, yeah, of course, it's much more likely to get a bad hand than a good hand because there are so many bad hands. So it's good to kind of understand the size of that space. The seven deuce in particular, though, like that being the very worst hand, that adds an emotional aspect if somebody shows you that bluff. Absolutely. So what I was going to say is that a lot of people in my shoes, they would have showed the seven deuce because they're so proud whenever they're able to win a a substantial pot with a seven deuce or with a bluff. They just, you know, they love showing. And I actually, I I never show my cards um, just because I think it's good policy not to reveal information. But I, I would never do that because I actually, you know, I don't want anyone to feel bad. I was trying to prove something to myself, not to prove something to anyone else. What I was trying to prove to myself is that, you know, this is so against my personality. It's so against the way I normally play that I was trying to prove that I could do it. It was almost me seeing, okay, you can free yourself up to think through this hand and to see whether, you know, is this a good time to do that? Because I can see other flops, I get away from my seven deuce incredibly easily other turns, other rivers, um, other action, I muck it. I don't, you know, I raised it pre-flop. It didn't, you know, it didn't work. I didn't take down the pot. That's fine. Um, I can move on. But to recognize that this actually was a pretty good spot to do this in and to do it and to be able to pull the trigger, it was empowering, but empowering to me. I felt no need to show that to other people. But I think a lot of the motivation with seven dues is to show it to other people. And so I think that that's actually a key distinction. You come into the poker with such an interesting background because you combine the analysis and the study with this keen understanding of psychology and con artists. Nowadays, what type of factors does it take you to open seven deuce? Are we are we expecting that when we're at a table with you? <laughs> um, no, no. I will be folding seven deuce unless it's suited because, you know, once it's suited, we're in a different situation. Um, no, I, I still think, I mean, seven deuce offsuit. Um, I know that there are people who, who say, you know, you, you can, you can play any two cards, really all, all that matters is kind of, is the dynamic. And, and that's true to a certain extent, but in my mind, you know, why, why do seven deuce, right? There, there are better candidates for crappy cards when you've been card dead, because I think one of the things that this also 
kind of taught me was that even if you're a card dead, you can actually use that to your advantage because your image shifts and then you can start opening things like seven deuce. But even if you're card dead, you're going to get better hands than seven deuce and hands that can actually do something that will be easier to play post-flop. That said, now that we've done this podcast, um, I might throw in a seven deuce or two this summer just to just to see what happens. Yes, that'd be great. And then let me know and I'll just like re- we can do We can do a follow-up podcast. Yes, more seven deuce. But- but you know that I do think like there's there's a beauty to the hand because it is so divorced from general strategy and it actually forces you to think creatively. It forces you to think in a nonlinear way. It forces you to engage the parts of your brain that you stop engaging when you're just working with solvers all the time. When you're playing something that you've never analyzed, you know, it forces you to like think creatively. Well, how many bluffs do I have here? Like, is this somehow counterfeit what I would be bluffing with normally? Like, you have to go through a much more detailed thought process just because it's a situation that you probably haven't been in before. And I think that that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm fascinated by your study program in poker. What is the best way to strike a balance between studying the math, studying with solvers, and studying player tendencies, because I've read and listened to you talk about how you did work with the solvers and, of course, with Eric Seidel but, and Phil Galfon, but you were also working on watching lots of televised tables and, like, studying yeah. player tendencies. And how did you kind of break that up and find the right balance? You know, I think the balance has changed for me depending on what I'm trying to accomplish. So there have been months where I've just kind of spent most of my time working with solvers and looking at videos that really break down ranges, break down PO analyses, you know, look at how other people approach these spots from that point of view. And then there have been times where I've just exclusively focused on watching streams and really steeping myself in how players are actually thinking about things. I I do think you need to balance the two. You have to give yourself goals and you have to figure out, okay, what part of my game do I want to work on right now? What are the holes I want to plug right now? Because just let's let's be completely clear in live poker everyone has holes because you don't have a hud you don't have those stats you know you you might be a genius but you're going to have some sort of hole because it's live poker and you're human and you get tired and you get emotional and i don't care if you have the highest earnings in the world and you've just won the last 10 tournaments you've played, you're still going to get into moments where you make a mistake. And so figuring out, okay, well, right now, what are the things that are losing me the most money? Or what are the things I most want to work on? What are the things that are going to break down the, the fastest when I'm in a kind of stressful situation? And then what are the tools that I can use that will help me address that? And it might be so the times when I really kind of dove deep into the world of solvers, it was because I realized that my bluffing frequencies were off, um, that I wasn't really sure, you know, what I should be doing for three bet bluffing for four bet bluffing, like I'd gotten some parts of that right, but some were wrong. And I didn't feel comfortable in a lot of those spots. So I said, you know what, let me really dive into these types of things so that I can figure out how solvers are approaching these, how they're approaching different boards, how they're approaching it, you know, from different perspectives on different textures. Let me get a feel for what I'm supposed to be doing. If I three bet preflop and get called and then completely whiff the flop and I'm in position or I'm out of position, how do I actually think about this? That helps a lot. 
And that's a very easy thing that the best players don't have to work on, I don't think, because they probably, they know this incredibly well. But for me, I'm a newer player, and there are, thought, there are spots that even if I theoretically know, practically speaking, when I get under pressure, my thought process won't necessarily break down, but it will be under enough strain that I won't do what I know I'm supposed to do, even if I know I'm supposed to do it. Needing to know things like the back of your hand, totally. Exactly. And solvers really help with that. But then I think it's incredibly important to get out of that world and to realize that, you know, when you're playing World Series events, when you're playing EBT events, um, you're going to be playing against really large player fields, a lot of whom don't work with solvers. And a lot of whom are just here for very, very different reasons. Um, and the dynamics are different. So I think it's really important to study you know, how do players respond in certain situations? How, what are player pool tendencies? It's hard when you're going into something like the World Series Summer to study specific players because you have no idea who you'll actually be um, at the table with at any given moment. So I don't think it's helpful to you know, try to get tells on specific players. Aspiring writers, you know, there's so many in the poker world and even just writing about their hands in a tweet or in a blog or potentially on a grid appearance, what type of hands are likely to make a good story and how can you be on the lookout for that when you're playing? I think that the hands that make the best story are the hands that make you think for different reasons. And sometimes it's because someone did something bizarre. Sometimes it's because you did something that you've never done before. Sometimes it's because you actually, for the first time in your life, perfectly executed a strategy that you'd known about forever, but that you were never actually able to implement. There has to be a narrative to the hand. And most hands have some sort of narrative, but I think for it to actually be a good story that other people want to hear about, it has to be some sort of a broader narrative, not just, well, he looked like he was bluffing, so I called him. But maybe this was a player with whom you'd had a dynamic for the last six hours of play, and you had been really watching closely, and all of a sudden this was the hand where it all came together and you were able to exploit something. So there, I think there has to be an arc that drives the hand, and that's going to make it interesting. And it could be just within the hand itself, because... Maybe the hand had some either some really interesting strategic things or something that someone did something very creative that brought out an important element about poker in general. So I think that what you need to be looking for is both the narrative of the hand, but also is there anything broader that this hand can teach you? Is there anything about this hand that's interesting to someone who doesn't actually care about poker hands? Because if you're just discussing hand strategy with a friend, any hand is interesting. And it's really interesting to talk about, oh, was my bet size incorrect? Was it off? What happened? What would I do with you know, this part of my range? What would I do with that part of my range? But people who don't care about poker, their eyes are going to glaze over and they're going to say, I don't even know what you're talking about. So try to appeal to that audience and say, okay, is this a hand that's actually going to be interesting from a broader perspective as well? And then it's a hand that's probably worth sharing more broadly as opposed to just looking to see, okay, did I think through this correctly? Did I play this right as you're talking strategy with one of your poker buddies? I totally agree. I mean, I think it's either the story, like the the person who said something weird that makes it 
completely different than any other hand history or the larger lesson, as you pointed out, of mm-hmm. this being the hand where you finally put all those hours of work into a perfect execution at the table, which yeah, is like, so much harder than it sounds. Absolutely. Like there was a hand that I still remember. Actually, I don't remember any of the specifics of the hand, but I ended up winning it and I was playing against this guy. I remember he just mucked his hands in absolute disgust because we got to showdown. I think I checked and he checked back. So I, I showed my cards. You should see the look on his face. As he mucks, the chips are pushed towards me, and he said, oh, my God, I played that like a total girl, not even realizing (laughs) that he's playing against me. He just says it, and a few people at the table kind of look at him, and he's like, oh, oh, well, sorry, I I didn't mean it like that. (laughs) If he played the hand like a girl, he would have won it. He would have backed it. And I was like, well, the girl is winning the hand, so I don't know. But it was just so funny because you could see that, first of all, he obviously was not used to playing with women. But secondly, like that was his first instinct. And that made the hand so memorable to me, even though, I mean, if you put a gun to my head, I couldn't remember what the actual hand was. But that interaction stayed with me. And it tells you so much. It tells you so much about the dynamics of the table. And, you know, if I encounter that guy again, I'll know how to play with him. Which great writer, like really great writer, do you think would make the best and worst poker players? <laughs> okay, best poker player, I think we're going to go with uh, Dostoevsky because he actually understood gambling incredibly well, understood the minds of players incredibly well, understood cards very well, understood, and most, most importantly, understood human psychology incredibly well. I mean, I have... He is one of the best observers of humanity, of human nature that I've ever encountered. If you look at any of his books, they're just just insane. And I know people would expect me to say Arthur Conan Doyle or his creation, Sherlock Holmes, but I actually think Dostoevsky would be much better. Well, that's a great uh, answer. I mean, the gambler. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So and it, so he understand. I mean, he understands how that works. And so since poker is not gambling, if you play it correctly... Um, if you actually understand it, I think that because he understands all of the other tendencies of people who don't view it correctly, he could really take advantage of that. So I think that he would be he would be the best. The truly great writers, let's see, who would be the worst poker player? Huh. Um, this is a tough one because I think that to be a great writer, you have to be a great observer. I mean, I, no great fiction writer, no great nonfiction writer can do what they do without observing humanity, without observing human nature. And so if you're a great writer, you already have a lot of what it takes to be a good poker player. So I guess it would be someone who would be completely uninterested in it and would think it was a total waste of time. Maybe someone like James Joyce would actually be pretty bad at poker because he wouldn't care and he'd think that it was too below him and he'd want to poke fun and take advantage of everyone at the table and show them how much smarter he was than everyone else and whenever you have an attitude like that you're never going to be good you can't win every pot and you can't have the need to win every pot and I think he'd want to because he'd know that he was with his inferiors and so he'd want to show them that so maybe maybe someone like Joyce (laughs) great answers you know after those two answers I totally am ready to like download crime and punishment on my kindle because it's been a long time and uh your your answer just like really makes me nostalgic to reread dostoevsky not so much james joyce (laughs) 
But the thing is, like, the you know, I, I was I hesitated before saying Joyce because Joyce loved puzzles and was very good at them, and he put them into his books. So from that perspective, I think he'd be very good at understanding poker. I think his ego is what would be his downfall because there's no room for an ego the size of Joyce's at the poker table. Thank you. You know, Maria, thank you so much for joining me. It's been phenomenal. I mean, I definitely think of Seven Deuce in a new way. (laughs) Everybody, I mean, it's really easy to find Maria. She's on Twitter and she's got a wonderful website at mariaconicova.com. And of course, with your poker updates, a lot of times you're more active on Instagram, I noticed. Yeah, that's actually, that's where I update most of my poker stuff. And obviously, Poker Stars blog covers your results yep. as well, so you should check that out. Thanks again so much for joining me, Maria. Thank you so much. And I'm sorry I couldn't give you any more, you know, cutting strategic insight. I figured you'd get that from other players. And so with me, you could just get good old seven deuce hit over the head. <laughs> if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and write a review. Your subscriptions, reviews, shares on social media truly helps motivate me as a quest for 169 intensifies. Also find me at US Chess Women, where I host another podcast, Ladies Night, and follow updates on the grid at Jen Shahadi on Twitter and Instagram. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah.